Good morning and welcome. My name is Kyle and I'm one of the pastors here and um, I don't know why everybody decided to come on the same day. But it's wonderful to see you all and it's wonderful to celebrate. Uh, we, we, we have lots of things. There are lots of things I could tell you about our church. Uh, and you could pick up a visitor guide or something like that. Uh, and we've got news in there. But, but I've got really good news for you this morning. Because I've got really good news for this, you this morning, I want to make sure that everybody can hear me because our speakers aren't always tuned for these side areas. So can you guys hear me over there? And can you hear me back there? All right. Matt, no? Okay, good. Well, let me pray for us as we look at this passage from John chapter 20. And now I ask, Lord, Believing that you are not among the dead, but above the li- among the living, and among us now, that you would come to us in all your saving power by your word, that we would receive it for what it really is, the word of God, and that people would hear not me, but Christ speaking to them and creating faith, life out of death hope out of darkness. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it is Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday is the Sunday of Sundays. It is the Sunday amongst all the other Sundays where we celebrate, especially celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that I would say is... um, Well, let's be honest. We all come out for this day, but most of the year, it's not something that we emphasize so much. I mean, uh, most people in the culture and the world would say something like, I like the idea of resurrection, it's a good idea, it's interesting, but I like it because I like the story of an underdog overcoming. I like the story of someone Uh, beating all odds. I like the story of hope arising out of despair and light out of darkness. I like that, but it's a nice principle, a nice idea. On the other hand, there are those in the church. And we in the church, let's be honest, we don't really emphasize the resurrection very much either. Because if we're honest, we have to say that oftentimes we say that we present the good news about Jesus Christ, and it goes something like this. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He died for your sins. Will you have faith in Him? And we stop there. And we think that we've preached the gospel. And yet, I want to suggest to you that for... Well, for the apostles... For Jesus' earliest disciples, for the first Christians, the resurrection was the was the, the thing that if you did not have it, Christianity didn't make sense and we're wasting our time. It was like bread pudding at the wine cask. You say, what are you talking about, Kyle? Well, I'd love to tell you. So, uh, my wife and I, uh, sometimes we go out on a date and it's just a dessert date. And the other night we said, oh, it's kind of cold and 
I'm, uh, I'm feeling like I want some home food. You know what I'm talking about when you're in that mood. It's kind of damp outside. It's when it's, you know, gets to 67 in Santa Barbara. We all light the fires, you know. It's a little damp. We light the fires. You know what I'm talking about. Well, it's one of those nights, and so we decide, you know what I really like? I like that bread pudding at the wine cask. So we go to the wine cask, and we sit down, and they bring us our waters, and then we're just having dessert. They bring us the dessert menu. When they bring us the dessert menu, we look at it, and we're like, where's the bread pudding? And oh, well, we, we haven't had that on our menu for quite some time, like years. So we look at each other, and we're like, well, what do we do? Because we look at the menu, and we're like, no. It's all chocolate. Who likes chocolate? Some of you know that I do not like chocolate. So we got up and we left. And we said, sorry, we're, I mean, if you don't have bread pudding, we don't even know why you exist, right? No, I didn't really say that. I didn't say that, but I thought it. I thought it because that's why I go to the wine cask. I mean, for me, there's no point in it if it's not for that. If you own the wine cask or a cook there or whatever, we love you, you're great, okay? But you, I'm weird, you get the point. For the apostles, the resurrection was like that. If you don't have the resurrection, Paul says that we are wasting our time. You should be out on the ocean this morning. You should be anywhere but here. You're totally wasting your time. Why? Why did they think that it was so important? Well, I want to tell you three things about the resurrection from this passage that give us insight into why they thought it was so important. First, the resurrection is historical. Second, The resurrection is magical. And third, the resurrection must be personal. So first, the resurrection is historical. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a um, biologist, a scientist. He's also uh, become a very outspoken atheist apologist. And he uh, says that the resurrection is about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Now that's rhetorically very punchy. But I guess my question is, is it true? It's worth considering. I mean, you know, one of the things that strikes me so much about this account in John's Gospel is the details. And how detailed it is. I mean, first you've got the significant details that you expect. Things like that it's Sunday, it's the first day of the week in verse 1. Or that Mary Magdalene is there first in verse one, or that the stone is rolled away, or maybe that the body is missing. These are like the big significant details that you would expect in a story like this, right? But then what about the superfluous details? Did you notice those? How verse 2 says that Mary didn't just go to the disciples, but she ran to the disciples. Or how, how when... Peter and John heard about this. You see, uh, John, we know, was a younger man. He was a younger disciple. But Peter, we know, he was very competitive. And John remembers how they both started off running, verse 4 tells us. But John got the better of him. He beat him there. And then it tells us how he stooped in to look very low. And then you got these details like that Peter saw the face cloth Verse 7, all folded up. Now, why these details? They're actually superfluous. They, they don't make the story go forward. And you have to understand that details like this in the ancient world, I mean, Charles Dickens had not come around yet. 
people didn't, ancients didn't waste their time on descriptive details like this. They didn't talk about, you know, for pages on end, horses falling in mud, uh, you know, up a, up a hill. So what's going on here? Those who research memory say that when someone has an experience that includes a high level of surprise, an experience where they hear news that is extremely consequential, and an experience that incites a, a deep emotional reaction, Memory researchers say that people have what they call, in 1977, they came up with this term, a flashbulb memory. It's a memory where you have a highly detailed, exceptionally vivid snapshot of the moment and circumstances in which a piece of surprising and consequential news was heard. It's why when someone asks you, where were you on 9-11? That's what they're getting at. Where were you when the Challenger crashed and you heard about it? See, I can remember. I can remember the class I was sitting at at my college, at Mississippi College. I can remember exactly how it was laid out, and I remember the, the professor that was up front. And I can remember where I was when, the, when I saw the news that the Challenger crashed, and I can remember my living room and the front room of it. I remember it was breakfast time. I remember the news was on. I remember all that. Superfluous details rise to the surface even. Why do we have these superfluous details here? Why did John remember that he outran Peter? Or that they stooped low? I think it's because he's having a flashbulb memory. He had heard news that was so surprising, that was infinitely consequential, and that caused the deepest of emotional reactions. And because of that, his mind was flooded, forever flooded with these details. Now, I know what you're saying. Wait a second, Kyle. But I am a memory researcher. And I know that flashbulb memories and those details in them are not always accurate. You're right. You're absolutely right. I don't really think that's the point is that something had to happen that was so emotionally charged, that was so surprising, that, that was so intensely consequential and infinitely consequential that the apostles would have had something like this. And if you can't explain it by the resurrection of the dead, then tell me, if it wasn't Jesus rising from the dead and the fact that they met him, what was it? Because you got to come up with something. There's got to be something that affected them so deeply, all of them, all of them so deeply that they had these kind of flashbulb memories. And I think the most plausible explanation, absolutely, is that Jesus really rose from the dead. That it's a reality. And this is actually confirmed not just in the significant details and the superfluous details, but it's also, it's also confirmed in the damning details. You see, there are things in this story that you just would not make up if you were making up a story. Like, for instance, notice how they say that Peter and John, and John is the one who is describing this, he is the beloved one who arrives with Peter. Notice that he doesn't record him as being, himself as being the first to arrive. Why? 
Because we learn later on that they didn't believe verse 8. Why would you put that? And why would you put in there in verses 14 and 15 how Mary, the one who was the original eyewitness, how she didn't recognize Jesus at first? Why would you put something like that in there? In fact, why would you use Mary at all? Did you know that um, before there was Richard Dawkins, there was Celsus? Celsus was an atheist philosopher, and he, he, he took Christians to task because of this. He said, how can you believe a story that is predicated upon the eyewitness accounts of different world, different time, women? Uh, he said that Mary Magdalene is a hysterical and deluded female, deluded by sorcery. So how can you believe her? In fact, uh, Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish um, historian, said that multiple, the eyewitness accounts of multiple women was still not acceptable because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Now, these things are incredibly, incredibly sexist. They're incredibly offensive today, and I completely understand that. But what I want you to realize is that in the ancient world, if you were coming up in this cultural time, in this context, with a story, and you were making it up, guess what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't have your first eyewitnesses be people that no one else believed were credible witnesses. Why would they do that? If you were going to make up a religion, I, I don't recommend doing this. If you were going to make up a religion, here's how you would do it. So I would do it. I would say that I received a revelation that was very, very private. You know, like I got some golden tab a golden tablet somewhere. And I would say that I had this vision or this revelation or a vision out in the desert. And I would say that I had it, and then I would bury the thing and lose the evidence. And I had this experience that was not verifiable by anyone else. That's what I would do. But you know what I wouldn't do? I wouldn't write in, uh, and you know what else I'd do? I would make the people who actually had this experience, I would make them have the most robust character qualities ever. Like if they were on stand and there were character witnesses that came before, they would have the most robust character witnesses ever. Why do these gospel writers, as, their, as the people that they choose to be the first ones to see, first a woman who's not considered credible in that culture, second, a woman whose former lifestyle would not have been a great character witness, she was a prostitute, uh, why would you put the, the apostles not believing at first, why would you do all this stuff unless it was actually true? That's the reason. You see, these first eyewitnesses, they were so committed to the truth that they were, they were going to tell it even if it seemingly undermined their account. This is historical. This actually happened. The resurrection happened. And here's why that matters. It matters for two reasons. The first reason is this. If, the resurrect, if Jesus really rose from the dead on the third day, then you have to deal with it. It's not like an interesting principle that you're like, oh, 
I'm going to take that and I'm going to apply it in life and that's really interesting and uh, it's kind of a take it or leave it principle. The, the resurrection isn't like that. Denying the resurrection is not like denying um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink one glass of water for every caffeinated drink I drink, right? The resurrection of Jesus denying it is more like akin to denying gravity. It is a central reality in the world. And you have to deal with it. The second reason why this is important, though, is this. Oh, and by the way, if that is true, because if this is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe it is with all my heart, then this is what it means. It means that everything that he claims is true. It means that he is the ultimate Lord. It means that there is a judgment, and because of that, your life matters. It means that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And it means that there is real hope. And you've got to deal with it. The second reason why this is important, though, is because, you know, if you have, if you have kind of light problems, if you've got minuscule or minor problems or kind of some problems here and there, then, then, then maybe a story about, about light in the face of darkness or that all things work out for good in the end, maybe that will bring you some solace. But if you have real, real historical bodily problems, then you need a real historically historical bodily answer. Because my problems aren't just, um, you know, a little bit of messed up thinking here and there. My problems is that my loved ones die. My problem is that I'm going to die. My problem is that, that there is physical uh, infirmities in the world. The problem is that the problem is that there is real injustice, real slavery that affects people really deeply and has traumatized them through their bodies and it remains in their bodies. And so we need not just an idea of something, we need a bodily resurrection. We need someone to come into this world in all its physicality. And save it in all its physicality. And that's what we have. We don't just need a story that makes you feel good. We need a app that turns the world good. And that's what the resurrection gives us. Which brings me to my second point. That the resurrection is not just historical. The resurrection is also magical. In verse 11, we find Mary being very distraught. She is weeping outside the tomb. In fact, she's so distraught and so dis- in anguish, she doesn't even notice that the, those who talk to her in verse 13 are angels. She knows that she has this casual conversation with angels. It's like she doesn't even recognize that they're angels. I think the author is telling us that we realize that they're angels. She doesn't. She's just kind of like so, so wrapped up in her pain that she can't get it. In fact, she doesn't notice Jesus either, verse 14. She doesn't recognize him. Have you ever been so taken up with something and in pain that you just don't even recognize your surroundings? That's where Mary's at. And then Jesus, he asked her this very, very, very penetrating question. Verse 15. Why are you weeping? And what are you seeking? I wonder what would happen if he asked us that question. Why are you weeping? 
What are the things in your life that has caused the deepest anguish, the sorrow behind the sorrow? Why are you weeping? What is the deep from which your tears flow? Why are you weeping? And what are you seeking? What is the desire behind all other desires that you seek? You know, uh, U2 has that very, very famous song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've climbed highest mountains, I've walked through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Why does that song have such deep resonance with us? I think because we know that we have this desire behind all our desires that the things of this world just can't really meet. That we wish that they could. That, that we realize that, that there is something deep down, even when we, when we find the things that we, that we think we're looking for, that there's something deeper still. And that this world can't offer it. That actually we can't get it in this world because at the end of the day we can't turn back the clock and we can't be created anew and we can't undo history. And so all the disappointments and the failures and all the loss and all the regret, they're just there. They're just there. And it's almost as if to, to have those desires met, we would need to enter another world. It's why I think that we like fairy tales so much. You know, fairy tales are magical worlds where the deepest sadness is wiped away, our greatest desires are met. Fairy tales are worlds, present us with worlds where all the sad things come untrue and all the incomplete things in life are made whole and substantial. And when we're children, we love fairy tales, but as we grow to be adults, we start to outgrow them, don't we? Fairy tales are for children or they're for people who don't want to face reality. And what we feel like is, is, is if we face the real world, the things that we have to cling to are the relics of hope and the pictures and, and empty tombs, gravestones. There's a, there's a guy who's a, a songwriter. We sing a lot of his tunes. He's... He's rewritten, uh, he's one of my favorite, actually, uh, authors who rewrites tunes of old hymns. Through lots of tragedies in life, he has renounced the faith and left it. He, he, he put up on social media this tweet of an interaction that he had with his daughter. He said his daughter asked him if I'll be with her forever, he says. And he says, through tears I say, of course. And she asks, do you promise? And he says, how can I break it all down for her? I can't cope with it myself, that we all one day will leave this planet. My answer, I hold and squeeze her and cherish it all. You know what he's saying? He's saying, there is an ultimate hope. You just have to cling to your gravestones. And your relics. That's what Mary's seeking. That's where Mary is. Verse 13. What is she seeking? And why is she just so distraught? Verse 13. She is distraught because they have taken away the body of her Lord. 
And what is she seeking? She is clinging to a reality that she knows, and that is a grave and a memory. Because she lives in the world where hopes aren't really fulfilled and fairy tales really don't come true. And because of that, she is clinging to a world where tears aren't wiped away, where hopes are ultimately dashed. Mary is clinging to a world where after people die, if their bodies are moved, they're only moved because they're taken away by somebody. But John is presenting us with another world. Let me show you. Some of you may know what happened in the beginning. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he do that when the earth was formless and void? Deep darkness covered the earth. And then in the space of six days, God created the earth. And on the sixth day, on the sixth day, God created humanity. And you know how he created humanity? He breathed out his spirit, his life into them. And then God said, it is good, it is finished, I am satisfied. And on the seventh day, on Saturday, he rested. It was the sixth day when God hung on a tree. Friday afternoon, and it was on the sixth day that he breathed out his last. And it was on the sixth day that he said, it is finished, and my work of completing humanity is done. And notice that John tells us that we are not on the sixth day or the seventh day, because the seventh day, the seventh day, that's the day he rested in the tomb. But now we're on the first day, a new day. And John makes a big point of this. It is the first day, the first day of a new world and a new creation. A world where all the things are wiped away. A world where all hopes are fulfilled. Did you notice... Did you notice what Mary mistakes Jesus as in verse 15? A gardener. Do you think that's a coincidence? Who was Adam and Eve, the first humans, when God completed their work? But a gardener. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Till the earth, cultivate it, care for it. Adam was a gardener. And Jesus is saying to Mary... I am the second Adam. I am the gardener of the new creation, a creation, a new world where every tear is wiped away, where all the sad things come untrue, and we really find what we are looking for, all the desires behind the desires. J.R.R. Tolkien was a writer and author. He wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he had a, a friend. He was a, a, also a very serious and devout Christian. He had a friend named Jack. We know him as C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis at that time was not a Christian. And C.S. Lewis was talking to him about fairy tales. And he said, you know, it's interesting. All the fairy tales in the world and all these stories, it's like they point to this reality and, and we wish that it was true, this reality, these kind of principles. And it's like humans just have a longing for these, these stories to be true, but they aren't true. And then Tolkien looks at him and says, well, what if they are? And he says, I actually believe that they are. I believe the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ is not one myth among all the other myths 
that point to some reality that we can never attain, but all those other myths point to the myth that's made true, the reality of Jesus Christ. And so every fairy story, every fairy tale, it finds its end in this story. They're all about this. You see, you and I, we're like little wooden boys who who long to come into their own and take on flesh and blood, and one day we will. We are like, uh, we're like beasts who need to be loved into beauty by transformative love and with a kiss. And guess what? We will. We, we are like, we're like, like people who are like deep down, we know we're royalty. Let's be honest. Deep down, we know we are kings and queens, but we've been separated from the royal household through some tragic event. And, and we know that we need to be placed back into the royal household with our family. And you know what? We will. They all point to this story. They're all about him. This is the magical story. And Jesus, when he says, Mary, what? why are you weeping and what are you seeking? He's inviting her to expand her hopes. He's inviting her into another world. He's inviting her into a greater reality. He's saying, what you are seeking cannot be found in this world. What you are seeking is standing right in front of you. And she got it. You know how I know she got it? First, she clung to him. Verse 17, Jesus has to tell her to stop clinging to him. She was clinging to him. You know why she was clinging to him? You ever heard the the phrase, pinch me, I'm dreaming? There's just something that's too good to be true. We say, pinch me, I'm dreaming. She's clinging to him. She's pinching him. She wants to know that she's not dreaming. She's got it. But you know how else I know that she got it? She let go of him. Jesus says, stop clinging to me. I'm going to ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. But he says, go and tell my brothers. Verse 18, she went and she announced. She was able to let go of the dream, the dream made true, and go and announce why. Because she knew that the reality was so real that nobody could take it away. You know, Christians are those, those who get this reality. Christians are those who, they've always been those who were actually okay to give up their bodies in death. They cared about the body. They cared about the world. They thought that material mattered because of the resurrection of the dead. But they also knew that if they died, the Lord would raise them again. And that's why it was the Christians who went back into the plagues and into the cities and served people even at the expense of their own life. That's why it was the Christians who were willing to take on discarded children to their own peril. It's, it's why... It's why the Christians who were willing to, to suffer martyrdom and basically say, death, what have, what have you on me? It was why Christians are able to not get, not get so upset when they don't have all their desires met here and now in this life and this world. And they're able to give up their privilege, their desires, their pedigree, their pursuits, their dreams, for the sake of others. Why? Because they know that if this story is true, then they will have them and they've been given to them 
there is another world that they are going to and that they will live in. Do you know this magical world? Have you experienced it? Well, you have to experience it personally. Which brings us to my last point. That the resurrection is not simply historical, not simply magical, but it's also personal. And if you want it, even though it's historical, it will mean nothing to you and for you unless you appropriate it personally. Notice when it is that Mary, when Mary finally realizes that it's Jesus. They're having this conversation in verse 16, and she doesn't get it. She assumes he's the gardener, and then, I mean in verse 15, and then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It was when he called her name. It was when he addressed her personally. And she, she addresses him personally and familiarly in a way that where you, you have to record her native familial tongue, Aramaic, to get it. See, it wasn't enough for Mary to know that some strange event had happened somewhere. That some mysterious historical occurrence had happened. Mary didn't need information. She needed an encounter. She didn't need to know about the resurrection. She needed to know the resurrected one. And so do you. And so do I. Rabboni. And you can see how, how personal and familiar this is. Jesus sends her off, verse 17, and he says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see, Mary, he's not just a God, and he's not just the God, but he's your God, He's your sovereign, omnipotent King, the Creator and Redeemer of the world. He's your Lord, and He's your Father. He claims you as His child. If some of you, you're here today, and the resurrection for you, it's an intellectual curiosity. It's very interesting. How do you make sense of the rise of the early church coming out of Judaism? And how do you make sense of all these people proclaiming Jesus and being, uh, were they deluded? What was going on? I mean, it, the resurrection for some of you is a very interesting historical fact. And some of you are going, well, strange things happen in life. Listen, if the, if the resurrection of Jesus is simply an intellectual curiosity, then it will never be a life-transforming reality. And what that means is that you will still be weeping and clinging to gravestones. And pictures and relics weeping in the dark searching for empty tombs but when you come to know the resurrected one personally when you come to see that he is not only the God but he is your God and he is your father and that you are his beloved son or daughter then it will transform everything about you. There are so many ways in which this transforms these disciples and transforms people, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick one. It will absolutely transform your identity. Did you notice how John, who is recording this 
of how he doesn't refer to himself with his name. He actually calls himself, verse 2, the one whom Jesus loves. Why? You know, a name is the most central and significant piece of our identity. Period. It's why changing names and what we do with names and all that, it can be so so harmful and hurtful. It can also be why it's so controversial. I mean, who you are is your, is your name. It's what you're called. It's how you're known. It's how you're identified. Identity is wrapped up in name. And even when we have to disambiguate, name still comes first. It's John Smith, the actor, not John Smith, the basketball player. See what comes first and what comes second. Your name is central to your identity. And today we are in search of identity. You know what John is saying when he writes out his name and he says, I'm the one whom Jesus loved? He's saying, now I have something more core to my identity even than my own name. That I am loved. That as the Apostle Paul said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I am. I'm not the disbelieving disciple. I'm not the one who wanted to know, well, wait, how's my life going to end? Who I am is I am the beloved one. That's at the core of my identity. Do you know that? Do you know that if in Jesus Christ you have God as your Father and your God, that you are the beloved one, and that is the most important thing about you? Most of us have been called a lot of names in our lives, and we've been given a lot of labels, and a lot of labels we've taken on, and a lot of labels we haven't taken on, and they've just been put on us. Here's the name that God gives you. You are beloved. I was thinking about, I was thinking about, I have been thinking a lot about, for some time now, this whole idea that all the stories and all the fairy tales point to this great true story. And um, I thought about it a lot when I first heard the idea in my early 20s, reading Tolkien. And I thought about it again a whole lot when I started reading stories to my daughter. There's this little story that we used to read together. Um, it's called Guess How Much I Love You. Do you know this story? You should go look up this story. Guess How Much I Love You. It's about um, nut brown hair. And nut brown hair, um, there's little nut brown hair and there's big nut brown hair. Probably goes little and big. And little nut brown hair, who's a rabbit, uh, comes to big nut brown hair. His dad, and he says, you know, guess how much I love you. And he stretches out his hands and says, I love you this much. And then his dad says, Oh, well, I love you and stretches out his hand this much. And nut brown, little nut brown hair is like, whoa, your hand stretch out way farther than mine. So he's like, okay, what am I going to do? And then little nut brown hair says, guess how much I love you? I love you this much. And he jumps, right? And then, uh, and then big nut brown hair jumps way up into the trees, right? And he goes, I love you this much, right? And the one-upmanship kind of goes on, right? And so then it's, um, guess how much I love you? And they're looking. It's, I, I love you to the river, and then uh, Big Nut Brown Hair says, well, I love you over the river and past the hills. And, uh, and then, you know, it's, I love you over the river and past the hills and to the next plains. Little Nut Brown Hair says, and then Big Nut Brown Hair 
as Little Nut Brown Hair is falling asleep, says, you know, I love you. Well, first he's looking up in the stars, and Little Nut Brown Hair says, I love you to the moon. Big Nut Brown Hair, as he falls asleep, whispers in his ear, I love you to the moon and back. So, Neve and I kept, kept that up, and, you know, we would keep the one-upmanship up. Uh, I love you to the universe and back, right? I don't even know what that means, but she came up with that one, so I had to say in back. And, uh, and we'd also have sign language for it, so every time um, she would go off to preschool, she would stand in the door, and, you know, I, and we'd do this to each other, love you, moon and back, right? So we did that. I know, sweet, everybody take your tissue out. But, but as I was thinking about that, and I was, every time I said that, you know, like there was something that struck me deeply, that's that even though I could say I love you to the moon and back, there's something that I could never say to my daughter. But it's something that Jesus says to me. I love you to hell and back. I love you to death and back. I love you to heaven and back. That's how much he loves us. And when our eyes shall close in death, he whispers in our ears, I love you to death and back. And I'll love you to heaven back. And I'll love you forever and ever and ever. God, we ask that you would impress your love, your deep, deep love, that went to the cross and to the grave rose again and now has ascended on high for us and will come back and return for us in victory. Impress that love upon our hearts, we pray, as we celebrate the good news of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. As we continue to sing, we're going to take